greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he called a child to himself and set him before him, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Okay, well, we'll come back to five here in a minute. But look at just the first point he makes. What are the disciples uh, discussing? Yeah, they want to know from Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And they all wanted to be the other guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't exactly what they had in mind. You know, now, now you think of this in the context. Right before that fish episode, what had Jesus told them about? Die. Jesus is thinking about crosses. They're thinking about thrones. Seems to happen several times through here. And, and really makes you wonder if they even were listening. But Jesus called a child to himself. and says, unless you're converted and become like children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to humble yourself as this child. A child is dependent. A child has no clout or influence. A child doesn't seek status or honor. If, if we can't even come under the rule of God, we can't come into the kingdom until we're willing to really humble ourselves and not seek position, glory, status. That's pretty strong. And that's still a problem. It's amazing. It's amazing how concerned we are about getting proper recognition and proper power and impressing the proper people that's a plague and and it's not overly surprising since the disciples had so much problem with the same thing but Jesus is very clear you humble yourself like this child if you want to get into my kingdom comments and questions on that well then let's read 5 to 14 Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. If your hand co and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame and with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of, the, of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and, leaves, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine? on the mountains and go in search of the one who, that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he will rejoices more over he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So is it not the will of my Father who is in heaven that not one of these should perish? So he says whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What kind of status is there in receiving a little child? 
You know, not a lot. And, and I think we ought to think about that on a couple of levels. I mean, isn't it interesting that Jesus, the Son of God, gave a lot of attention to little children? I mean, I don't know. I can see a politician, you know, giving attention to little children because he wants votes. But do you really think Obama cares about anybody else's little kids? I mean, you would think, here's a guy who's, you know, dealing in, you know, world political. I mean, this, you know, two-year-old, you know, unkempt child or whatever is just going to be annoying. You don't think of an important person giving attention to a little child. And Jesus did. He'd hold them. Take them up into his arms and hold them and, and always wanted them to come. Even that in itself is an interesting feature of Jesus. But I think it's almost an illustration of what Jesus wants us to do. Because I don't think he's just thinking about, well, you ought to really you know, pay attention to little children. Because he uses this idea of a child and a little one then to speak of unimportant disciples. And I think the point is, we ought to welcome and encourage the nobodies. You know, are there some people that just are not very rewarding to pay attention to and to encourage? You know, there's some people that... I don't know, you just don't get much out of it. Maybe they're, maybe they're boring. Maybe they're, you know, obnoxious. Maybe they don't smell good. I don't know. They got something about them that you're just really, you know, turned off by. But, but what, if, what if Jesus had only come to bless the beautiful people? You know, the people that he found really enjoyable and really cool to him. Wonder who would have been blessed. If you've been up in heaven all your uh, existence with the angels and the seraphim and the cherubim and, you know, all that stuff and the beauty and the splendor of the mat, do you reckon there was anybody Jesus was ever around? that he really considered good company. <laughs> you know, if Jesus hadn't lowered himself and held his nose and actually chosen to love and care about people, you know, we'd all be like a leper to him. We'd all be like a, you know, unkempt little kid to him. And so he wants us to have that same compassion and concern for people who don't have status and who can't invite us back and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's one point he makes in verse 5. And, and think about how much that shows humility. There's little that shows your, your humility more than giving attention to somebody who doesn't give you anything back, especially if nobody's watching you. <laughs> you know, how much good will that do you? But on the other hand, what if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble? How's that? Dad. Yeah, thank you. I mean, wow. Throwing a heavy mill, hanging a heavy millstone around your neck, that's a uh, rather uh, weighty necklace, don't you think? <laughs> and throwing you overboard? What do you think is going to happen with a guy like that? 
sink quickly? <laughs> you know, that he's not going to be around long at all. That is how God views causing somebody else to sin. You know, what if through my behavior or my teaching, somebody else is led away from God and loses their soul? You know, it's bad to commit sin myself. It's even worse to lead you to commit sin. And you know who has the most danger of doing that? The people who have the most influence. You know, the, the, the more prominent we are, the more we teach, the more we influence, the more we might be in this category. So we have to really, really think about, you know, not leading astray somebody who's a stumbling block. There are going to be stumbling blocks, he says in verse 7. The world's a dangerous place, but don't let one of those stumbling, stumbling blocks be you. Comments and thoughts through 7. He kind of switches it in 8 and 9. What's he thinking about the stumbling block being? Hand or your foot. Yeah, because sometimes it's not other people who are enticing us to stray away from God. Sometimes we do it to ourselves. You know, we cause our own stumbling. And he says, whatever it is that's leading you astray, that's causing you to sin, causing you to fall, however near and dear it may be to you, even if it happens to be, you know, your hand or your foot or your eye, get rid of it. Deal radically with anything that's leading you to sin. And that may be Caleb and Fireproof taking a baseball bat to his computer. I'll tell you, I mean, for all the technology we've got, we'd be better, many people would be better off without any of it because it causes them to sin. You know, whatever it is, however much it costs you, or however stupid you may think it makes you look or disadvantage, if there's something that's causing you to sin, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's somebody that you, you know, you get around them and you misbehave. You know, whatever it is, even if it's, you really want it, you've got to vigorously repudiate anything that's going to cause you to be lost. It's better to go to heaven with nothing than to have it all and go to hell. That's really powerful. That's, that's just, you know, I mean, that's saying anything I need to give up to be, to be right with God, give it up. That's a no-brainer. What you'll get back is way worth more. Comments or thoughts? Could, could your hand or your foot technically even cause you to sin? Yeah, only in a secondary sense. Obviously, you make the decision. But then you can you argue that with anything. Yes. <laughs> it, it's true. There is nothing that ultimately forces me to sin. But there are some things that I choose to sin when I'm around them. <laughs> and if I'm not around it, I resist the sin more easily. Let's try to distinguish then that between the hand and those other things. It's like I can't be near something because my hand automatically <laughs> yeah. does something. And if I didn't have a hand, then I wouldn't have a problem. You know, that's quite a where relating that to the computer. If I get rid of the computer, I, have, I don't have a problem. I don't think the hand is the same thing 
exactly. The hand is my mind, whereas the computer is another object that comes in my presence that would be slightly different, I guess. Yeah, maybe, but I think that's the kind of thing he's thinking about is something that influences me to sin. I mean, when you think about what he said about causing somebody else to stumble, I mean, do we ever make somebody else stumble? No. I mean, you know, you can't make somebody do wrong, but you influence them. You can talk them into it or your life, an example, may be a negative, have negative impact on them or whatever. It's not that they're not responsible for their actions. We never have anything like that. But, you know, there are, there are people that, you know, we are a whole lot more likely to misbehave when we're around them. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they have a negative influence on us and so also things. I mean, you know, you could have a six-pack in the refrigerator and you don't have to drink it. If I had a six-pack in my refrigerator, I absolutely wouldn't drink it because I don't want to. I've never been tempted by that. It would be the last thing I'd ever want to do. You know, but for somebody that that's a temptation to, getting that close to it might push them over the edge. They'd still be making the choice. But don't set yourself up to make the choice more easy to do the wrong thing. Make it harder to. I mean, the truth is, you cut off one hand, you've got another one. You pluck out one eye, you've got another one. I mean, if there's no way. If you're bound and determined to do wrong, you can do it in your head. You don't even have to have anything. It's lust. You can lust never have a single thing you look at. You know, so it's not like you can make yourself not sin, but you can make it less convenient. That'd be nice. And then, he's really back on this idea of the concern for each individual. And he says in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones because... Their angels in heaven are before God. Now, he's trying to say every little one is important to God. I think little one here more or less means each Christian, maybe with emphasis on the least important ones. I don't think he just means little kids here. I think he's brought that out now to talk about, you know, little unimportant people. But he shows how important they are to God because their angels in heaven are before God. I take it that there is an angel associated with each person, or at least each Christian, and that they take a special interest in us. And if every brother has an angel that appears before God that has a special interest in him, surely I ought to. I ought to care just as much about him as the angels in heaven do. Now that's, I, I don't think people have generally really looked at that passage much. It probably comes as a shock to some people to know that people have an angel corresponding to them. And some people probably deny that. It looks to me like that is what he's saying. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. I don't think that ought to be thought of as that odd. We know from the book of Revelation that every church has an angel. 
We know from the book of Daniel that every nation seems to have an angel or a prince or something corresponding to it. So there's a lot of in angelic interaction with our world, probably more than we've ever stopped to think about. But the point here is not to go into a developed discourse on angels, but just to say if, an, if, there's, if there's an angel interested in this guy that's before God right now, you ought to be interested in this guy. Comments and thoughts on that one? Well, then he tells this little story about the uh, 99 safe sheep and the one sheep that's straying. How does the shepherd deal with that? Leave the safe ones and go find the other one. Would you do that? Does that seem a little uh, excessive? Yeah, you know, I mean, well, they got 99, isn't that enough? You know, what if it was a family member? Would you ever just say, oh, well, we got plenty of family members, you know, oh, yeah, we're missing that one. I mean, you got a pretty good sized family, Cameron. <laughs> You know, what if Logan just, just went missing? You know, nobody'd seen him for a week or two. Would your parents say, oh, well, we got four other kids. I mean, it's not a big deal. No. When you love Logan, it's a big deal. I don't care if you have 25 other kids. That's the way God feels about it. He feels like a shepherd would. One lost sheep. He's willing to go to a great deal of effort to recover it. And we ought to have that same concern for lost sheep. When we don't try to retrieve a brother who strays, we don't value him like we ought to. Hey, how you doing, Mom? We, we, we aren't valuing the brother the angels are concerned for. We're ignoring the one Jesus came to save. We're not we're neglecting uh, the, the one that, that, that the Lord was willing to go to great efforts to try to rescue. And I think we do that way too often. It, what, what would happen in a church if somebody just sort of, yeah, they just kind of quit serving the Lord? Well, we say, well, it's a good thing we got 99 who are still serving the Lord. You know, guess that'll make up for him. Don't know what happened to him. It's kind of sad. Maybe you'll come back someday. <laughs> You'd never do that with the sheep. Why would we do that with the brother or the sister? You know why we do that with the brother or sister? We don't care about them as much as the Lord does. I think that's powerful. I think that's what a lot of congregations do. <laughs> yep. Wonder why? You don't know each other to begin with. Maybe so, and if you don't know each other or care much, yeah, it's work. It is, and sometimes difficult work. I think it's 
Maybe we think that. What's the use? <laughs> you know, I am terrible about that kind of a mentality. And the Lord has shown me, I don't know how many times, how he's able to rescue people I had just thought were absolutely hopeless cases. I've just recently been talking to somebody that I essentially just given up on. I just decided, oh, there's no hope for that person. And all of a sudden, that person is changing like incredibly and doing really quite well. I can't believe I'm saying that. You know, who's to say who's a hopeless case? You know, I bet you if somebody else had been looking at us, they'd have probably said that about us. <laughs> you know, if I had been the Lord, I think I'd have thought the whole lot of us was a hopeless case. But he doesn't look at it that way. You know what I think our problem sometimes is? We're just way too self-focused and we really don't care very much about anybody besides us. You know, maybe our best friends, because that kind of impacts us. But this deep concern for those the Lord cares about is so much harder. And, and man, you see it in all sorts of ways. We just live lives to please us and to get our way. I mean, Jesus, think about how when Jesus would see the multitude, he'd see the sheep without a shepherd, and he'd have compassion, he'd start teaching them again. Jesus had concern for each individual. We ought to. Comments and thoughts? the hundredth sheep is just as important as the last sheep. You know, we'd say, well, of course he'd go after his last sheep if it wandered off, but, you know, if he lost one out of a hundred, that's not a big deal. You know, he sees uh, just as much value on each individual one. Um, it's as if he lost his only one when he loses one. Good point. Let me ask you this. In your experience, do really small churches have more concern for each individual member than really big churches do? No. You don't think so? I think they often do, especially if the one is somebody important in the group. Have you ever noticed that? If it's somebody who has a lot of impact, oh, everybody's all in an uproar, if, especially in a small church where they make a lot of difference and you lose one or two and, man, you're really kind of crippled. But you know, if that is the case, what that shows about us, we're not even, we're not even concerned about them for the right reason. We're just concerned about them because look what, what it'll do to us. Look how much we need this person. This isn't a question of we're concerned about them because we need them. This is a question we're concerned about it because God's concerned about it. He loves them and he wants them to be saved. That's got to be our concern. That's really powerful to me. This whole section, just the concern we have for others and even the little ones and the straying ones and the ones where we're like, ah, I guess they just deserve it. You know, if they're going to do that, if they're going to bend on the Lord, after all this, blah, 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 I just don't have any patience with that. You know, is that the way the shepherd would be? Any thoughts or comments? Fifteen to twenty. 
And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens to you, look, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall, have been, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may, may ask, it shall be done for them by the, my Father who is in heaven. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. I am in the process of rethinking verse 15. There is a textual question here that really can change the meaning of this. If your brother sins, some copies have against you and some don't. Now, if he, said, if he means if a brother sins against you, then he's talking about what should you do when somebody wrongs you. Here's how you ought to deal with that. Here's how you ought to go to them and try to, you know, resolve the problem before you tell everybody and bring everybody else into it. If the against you is not in the original, then this may be more saying what we ought to do with straying sheep. Not so much just sinning against us, but if a brother strays away, if he sins or whatever. I'm not sure which is, which is accurate. Um, so, you can think about that one. Uh, what does he say to do if your brother sins, whether it's against you or not? What does he say you ought to first do? Talk to him. How? Private. Just you and him. Why? No reason to involve anybody else. Like, if I can take care of it, then... Why is that better? Because safe face... Absolutely. Isn't it going to be easier for him to confess his sin and ask for pardon if not everybody else in the world knows all about it? You know, that just stands If you're trying to bring him back, the less publicity for the sin, the better. Well, it what? says, you know, you have, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So that's the purpose of your going there. Exactly. Not, you know, I'm going to stick it to him and I'm going to... You want to win him back. Him. Yeah. Exactly. And, and there's a better chance of that if you just talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. How do we usually do that? What's people's... Even if it's a personal offense against you, somebody really does something pretty mean to you, a brother does something pretty mean to you, What's often our first response? Tell somebody else. Tell somebody else. Maybe tell several somebody else's. Because we're hurt. We want some sympathy. You know, and you know, there are times when pretty much everybody else in the whole church knows the grievance I've got before I come to personally confront that person. That should not be. You know, it'll be a whole lot better. First, go to him privately. If he repents, everything's great. If he doesn't repent, what should you do? Take one or two more with you. Why? 
more witnesses. Yes. Have more facts. Yes. I mean, think about all the advantages of that step. Now you go back with one or two more. It's going to underscore the seriousness of this. It's going to maybe give you the wisdom of these one or two more that may be able to help. They may be able to see how to resolve the problem. And, you know, um, if nothing else, they may be able to testify before the church what the accused attitudes was when they confronted it. So who should you take? Let's say this is a problem between two people. You went to them, it was not good. They were defensive, they were offensive, it was, it was, it made bad matters worse. So you want to take one or two more, who should you take? Other people that don't like this guy. Yes, <laughs> preferably your best friend and your dad. That'll be good, won't it? That'll give you your support that you need. Take. Someone who knows a lot about the subject or is experienced in it, so that they have wisdom on the subject. Absolutely. What's our goal? Bring them back. Bring them back. So we want somebody who's got good character, good integrity, good impartiality, good wisdom. Somebody that this person might listen to and help him come back. This is not a matter of bringing our buddies and rallying everybody to our side. It's a matter of trying to bring him back. What if he doesn't listen to those one or two? Then what do you do? Tell him to the church. Yeah. He has three chances to repent. When you go to him, when you plus one or two go to him, and when it's told to the church, if he still won't repent, then have nothing to do with him. You know, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector in the way that the Jews would have treated Gentiles and tax collectors, that is, don't have any social contact with him. So at least those are the procedures. If there's some kind of personal problem between two people, maybe the procedures for any sheep that strays away. Um, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure whether that against you is really should be in that text or not. Comments and questions through 17. Are the two or three supposed to be witnesses of the of the initial sin? No, they're supposed to be witnesses of the conversation to try to bring him back. They can come before the church and say, you know, we talked to this guy and he blew up and did this, 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 and this. Or maybe there'll be witnesses who say, you know, we had this discussion between the two and the guy who's accusing him looks like the guy that's in the wrong when you listen to the two people talk together. <laughs> maybe they'll say that. But you've got some people there to try to help resolve the problem. Sometimes that makes a difference. Sometimes a guy won't repent when it's just the two of you. I remember one time being brought into a dispute between, between two sisters in a congregation. Sandra and I were brought in uh, by one of them. And, wow, that was such a blessing. 
They just could not work the problem out, but it didn't take any time. With just a third party, I don't know, we were young back then. It wasn't, or younger anyway. <laughs> it wasn't so much that we had such great wisdom, it's that it was easier to listen to somebody who wasn't a part of this, you know, conflict. When they tried to talk to each other, they were too defensive and too stressed and too whatever. When we could talk and, sh and try to bring them together, problem evaporated very quickly, quicker than I expected it to. Um, so sometimes that step will be helpful in trying to bring them back. That's our goal. We don't want to lose any, if possible. Other thoughts? All right, well, I'm going to leave it at this, and we'll pick up in 18, 18, and I don't know how many weeks. <laughs> <laughs>